You are now listening to the April 16th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Nearer to My God to Thee, the sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with Nearer My God to Thee. It's Terry from Nearer My God to Thee, where we look into the background of a hymn and reflect upon its meaning in a deeper way. Have you ever heard of the story where the life we live in this world is compared to a sinking ship? To save one's life in a sinking ship, one must use a lifeboat. Therefore, it is said that Christians must tell others on the ship about the way to the lifeboats. I think it's a realistic analogy. The only way for us to save lives in the sinking world is to hold on to our Savior Jesus, who is our lifeboat. Among the well-known hymns, there is a hymn that contains this similar analogy. First, let's listen to the hymn for a moment. Throughout the lifeline across the dark wave, there is a brother whom someone should save. Somebody's brother, oh who then will dare, to throw out the lifeline, his peril to share. This hymn is called Throw Out the Lifeline. This hymn was written by a minister named Edwin Newford. Edwin Newford was born in 1851 in New Jersey and studied theology at Stratford Academy. Later, he did theology study at the First Baptist Church in Portland. Afterwards, he met his wife-to-be and got married. He went to several places in Maine, such as Canton, Dedham, and Westwood, and shared the Word of God. When Pastor Edwin lived in the small town of Westwood, he wrote the hymn, Throw Out the Lifeline. What kind of opportunity made him write these lyrics? We'll find out through a drama. There was a beach on the small East Coast town. Pastor Edwin often walked on the sand at this beach and meditated on the Word and spent time with the Lord. There was something special at this beach. A broken ship that was swept by a fierce storm lay on the sand. It was such a huge ship that the townspeople didn't think of removing the ship, and it stayed in that spot for many years. One day, as Pastor Edwin was walking on the beach, he saw the broken ship. Um, it seems like that large ship was shipwrecked and got swept all the way here. 
I'm sure that the ship looked grand in the past. How did it get destroyed and end up on the sand? It must have been a huge accident. Pastor Edwin had many thoughts as he looked at the broken ship on the sand. He began to visualize the day when the ship got destroyed. The ship crashed into a reef and a big hole appeared. The water poured into the ship and it began to sink. The people on the ship were running and shouting to find a way to survive. He thought of the people shouting for someone to save them in the vast ocean. Ah, oh, it must have been such a horrific day. If I were in such a situation, what could I have done to save the people's lives? Oh, it would be good for me to learn the skill to save people who fall in the water. Pastor Edwin decided to learn the skill to save those who fall in the water. He went to the rescue center nearby and received training to rescue others. Everyone, please gather here. Today, We'll learn how to save people from a shipwreck. In most cases, these people escape from the ship and are floating on the sea. In this case, it wouldn't be easy for a boat to go to each person. Therefore, it's more effective to throw this rope, which is like a lifeline. When the people grab it, you can drag them towards the boat. Now, I'll teach you how to throw the rope. Watch carefully. You must throw this lifeline correctly to save people. Remember this. A lifeline? Yes, it's true. That rope is the lifeline that will lead people to life. This is what Christians must do for those souls who fell in the sea of death and are dying. We must throw the lifeline. After Pastor Edwin returned home from rescue training, he wrote about the inspiration he received that day. He then added a melody to the writing in the hymn, Throw Out the Lifeline Was Made. Someone threw the lifeline of Jesus Christ to us. By grabbing that lifeline, we were saved from the sinking ship of this world in the sea of death. Now, we must throw a lifeline to those people who fell into the sea of death. Are you throwing a lifeline to those around you who are still sinking? I hope we can carry out our calling. We'll end nearer my God to thee. So. Mm-hmm.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is, Don't Miss the Point. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. So let me ask you a question tonight. Is this possible in your life? To do all kinds of things. Maybe even good things. But get to the end and realize you actually missed the whole point. Is that possible? I think it's, it's not just possible. It happens all the time. In this world, I would say it's not just possible. It's probable. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? This is straight from his mouth in Mark chapter 8. It's possible to gain the whole world. To have it all, like everything. Like think everything that Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos own. You're just getting started. You can have it all. Like all the success, all the money, all the fame, all the glamour, all the everything. This, the whole world. Jesus says, you can have it all and in the end miss the whole point. So how do you make sure you don't get to this point? And if I could just 
remind us, like this point, the end of our lives, could be tomorrow for any one of us. I trust we, we all realize we're not guaranteed to make it to 70, 80, 90. And we're not, we're not guaranteed to make it to the end of this gathering tonight. Like, our lives are a mist. They're here for a second, gone the next. So, but at some point, at any point, it's going to come to an end. How do we make sure when we get to that point we've not missed the whole point? And I just want to show you three truths in what Jesus said right before he used these words in Mark 8. Three truths, and, and, and I, my hope is these truths will just lead us before Jesus. So the, the main event, just to be really clear, the main event tonight is not any of the talks that have happened, this talk, the main event is I want to lead you just a couple minutes from now to be at the feet of Jesus. Saying, maybe for some of you, in a defining moment in your life, I want my life to count for what matters most forever. And maybe for some others, uh, a refining moment in your life where you say in, in this arena tonight, I'm refocusing on what matters forever. Based on these three truths that come straight from Jesus' mouth. So if you're taking notes, here's number one. First truth. Jesus, and this is super simple and extremely significant. Jesus came to give us life. Actually, let me rephrase that. Jesus died to give us life. Jesus died to give us life. So Mark chapter 8, if you want to follow along, and I don't know if we got it on the screen or not. Is that a no? We're not, we don't have it on the screen? I can't see. Okay. He began to teach them. The Bible says, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. So let me say that one more time, because it's not on the screen. I want to make sure this we all hear this. Jesus began to teach his disciples that he, the Son of Man, must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. So that sentence that I just read represents the greatest news in all the world. How Jesus died to give us life. So I, I'm guessing... Not everybody in this room has grown up in church or been in uh, Christian settings even like this. Some of you, and, and, and you've never heard this truth, others of you have grown up in church, maybe even a lot of Christian settings, settings like this, but you've, you've had a hard heart toward this truth. Or this seems like just kind of, okay, yeah, yeah, I know that, in a way that you're missing the significance of this reality. The reality that every single one of us in this arena has been created, formed, fashioned by God himself. That he has made us fearfully and wonderfully in his image for relationship with him. You and I, every single one of us in this room, created to experience life in relationship with God. We're talking about God, the creator of the universe has created you to experience life in relationship with him. Problem is, every single one of us in this arena 
has rebelled against God in our relationship to him. It looks different in every single one of our lives, but we have all, the Bible calls this sin, sinned against God, turned aside from God and his ways to ourselves in our own ways. We know better what is best for our lives than God, so we think. And we've run into all kinds of things in this world apart from God. This is why we have evil and injustice and hurt and pain and sorrow and suffering in this world, because all of us have turned aside from God. And not just in this world. When we think about eternity, for all who die in this state of separation from God, the Bible clearly teaches that all who die in their sin before God will spend eternity experiencing God's judgment due their sin. But the good news of the Bible is that God loves us, you and me, and he has made a way for you and me to be forgiven of our sin and reconciled to relationship with him. God has come to us in the person of Jesus to make a way for you and I to experience life. Even that reality is revolutionary. I was having a conversation in a country in Southeast Asia with a couple of guys from different religions. We were out sitting outside one of the temples uh, that they worship in, and we were having this conversation. They knew each other pretty well. I had just come into the conversation, was meeting these guys, and they were talking about our different beliefs. They knew I was a follower of Jesus, and they said, basically, they were kind of talking about how we all... Um, we may use different names and say different things, but we kind of essentially believe the same thing. Like our religions are fundamentally the same, just superficially different. I said it, I listened for a while and I said, it's almost like you guys picture God or whatever you want to call him at the top of a mountain and we're all at the bottom of a mountain and I may take this path up and you may take that path up, but in the end we'll find ourselves in the same place. And they smiled, they said, exactly, you understand. I said, let me ask you a question. What would you think if I told you that the God at the top of the mountain didn't wait for you to find a way up to him, or me to find a way up to him, but the God at the top of the mountain actually came down to us where we are? They said, well, that would be great. I said, that's the difference. This is the greatest news in the world. God has not left us alone in our sin, in a world of suffering and sorrow and death. God has come to us in the person of Jesus, and he has done what no one else could ever do. He's lived a life we couldn't live, a life of no sin. He's died on the cross to pay the price for sin. Even though he had no sin to die for, he chose to die on a cross to pay the price for the sins of all who would trust in him. And the good news keeps getting better because he didn't stay dead for long. Three days later, he rose from the grave. He conquered sin and death itself. Like rose from the grave. Just picture it. Like you go to somebody's funeral Tomorrow, you see a body put in the ground, dirt poured over that coffin, and then you leave, and next week, that guy comes up to you on campus and says, hello. That's crazy. It's crazy good. It's the greatest news in all the world. Death has been defeated. And eternal life, not death, eternal life is possible for everyone who puts their trust in Jesus. And only for those who put their trust in Jesus. There is no other way. I remember being on campus at University of Georgia and day in and day out on that campus, like hearing all kinds of different beliefs and thoughts. And I remember I had a speech class one day and it was, it was my day to give a speech. I decided to give a speech on, on 
the good news of the Bible. And I shared what I just shared here. And then they got to ask questions afterwards. And I'll never forget, first person to ask questions. Uh, her name was Jane, sitting in the class. She said, uh, this speech comm class, she said, uh, I just got a question. Are you telling me that if I don't believe in the Jesus you're talking about, that when I die, I will spend eternity in hell? And I never had to put quite that way in front of quite that many people. And I began to sweat profusely. And all these eyes like trained on me. And I'm looking back at Jane and I said, I said, Jane, uh, we all have sin in our lives that separates us from God. And no matter what we do, we can't get rid of that sin. And the only way that sin can be addressed in our lives is through what God has done in his grace through Jesus. So yes, apart from trusting in him, you'll spend eternity in hell when you die. Immediately sighs go up across the room as the arrogant, narrow-minded Christian is standing there in front of them. And I remember Jane came up to me right after class. She said, that's the most arrogant, closed-minded thing I've ever heard anybody say before. That's so offensive. She walks off. I remember, I remember wrestling with that. I remember walk, where I was walking on campus one day where I'm just like, is this, I don't want to be closed-minded, arrogant. Is this true? I began wrestling with that. It's true. It's like Jesus is the only way to God. Wrestled through that all the end of that semester. We left for the summer. I came back at the beginning of the fall semester, and I walk into class, another speech comm class. You'll never guess who's sitting in class. Jane. She turns around. She's like, I want to talk to you afterwards. It's like, okay. And we'd had many, many conversations since class that day. But it was every conversation. It was like, you ever in conversation with somebody, it just seems like every word is just bouncing off a brick wall. It just doesn't feel like it's going anywhere. She's like, I want to talk to you. I like, okay. So I wait outside in the hall for an after class, she comes up to me and she's start walking. Long story short, she says to me, David, I just want you to know this summer I found out, realized Jesus is the only way to relationship with God. And I've trusted in him to save me from my sins. Now I know that when I die, I'm going to heaven. I remember, remember hearing Jane say that. She began to describe, like I figured it out. Like it's not, not about all these different ways. She said, that's what I would say to anybody in this room tonight who's wondering, like, why are there not other ways? Like, there could be a thousand ways. We would want a thousand and one. The issue is not how many ways there are. Their issue is our autonomy. We want to make our own way to God. And the good news of the Bible is that God has made his way to us. That Jesus has died. He's given his life so that you and I might have life forever. That's the first truth. Now it leads right into the second truth. So here's the second truth. If we want to live, then we have to die. So Jesus died so we might have life. But if we want to live, then we have to die. So this is what Jesus says right after this. He calls the crowds to him after he's talking about how he's going to die for them he calls the crowd to him with his disciples and he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let him deny himself, like die to himself, 
take up a cross, an instrument of death, in order to live, we have to die. Say, so what, what does that mean, to, to die, to deny ourselves, take up a cross? Well, clearly, part of this means dying to sin, dying to these desires for this world and our ways over God and his word and his ways, dying to sin and the pleasures and pursuits that are offered to us in the world through disobedience to God. If we want to live, we have to die to ourselves and our ways of doing things and our desires in this world to live for his ways according to his word and his desires. And when I was praying about this night, like Ignite Auburn, here's a, here's a picture that came to my mind. I don't know if you know much about the story of the church in South Korea, but the church grew in South Korea from less than 1% Christian in 1900 to by 2000, there were 10 million followers of Jesus in, in South Korea. Like massive like movement. Talk about Ignite. Like a few thousand Christians, 10 million within a century. And it all started at a meeting, 1907. It's called the Pyongyang Revival. And what happened to this meeting is a small group of Christians got together and the Spirit of God visited them in a way none of them had planned and they began spontaneously confessing sin. One on this side of the room, another on this side, another. They just started standing up and crying out in confession of sin, like audible confession of sin, and with tears in their eyes. And then more people would stand up and they'd fall on their faces and they'd just start weeping and crying out in confession of sin, confession of sin against each other, hidden sin that nobody else knew about. And this went on for hours into that first night and the next day, the next night, the next day, and the next night. And from that began a movement that would spread to millions of people following Jesus on the Korean Peninsula. Why? Because people began to get serious about confession of sin. And I just, I was praying about this night. I was just thinking like how rare that is among us. Like how many times have any of us, even if you've grown up in church, and I've spent most of my life in church, how many times have we been in a setting where people are just crying out, like weeping, because we're confessing sin and we're turning from it? Like we, we've bought into a, a whole gospel that says, come to Jesus and get fill in the blank. In some settings, it's come to Jesus and get health, come to Jesus and get wealth, come to Jesus and get success, come to Jesus and get prosperity, come to Jesus and get comfort, come to Jesus and get fill in the blank. No, that's not the gospel. None of that's the gospel. The gospel says, come to Jesus and get Jesus. He's the one we want. He's the one we need. We die to all these things. We're not after, it's not, Jesus is not a means to worldly ends. He's the end. See the end in your life. See the one thing you want. The one thing you desire. This is my one desire, the psalmist says. I just want to be in your presence. 
Or is it, no, I, I really want uh, success in this world plus Jesus. I really want this relationship plus Jesus. I really want, like, die to the stuff of this world. This is life. This is true life. In order to live, we have to die. And that leads to the third truth. It's what Jesus says right after this. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So truth number one, Jesus died to give us life. Truth number two, if we want to live, we have to die. Truth number three, Jesus calls us to die so that others can live. Jesus calls us to die so that others can live. Whoever would save his life will lose it. You focus on yourself, this world, it's a recipe for losing your life. But whoever loses his life for my sake and, so follow this, and the gospel's sake, for the sake of this message. Because let's just put it out there. It's not just you and me who, whose lives are represented by this rope. It's a campus full of people right now who are also going to come to an end point and are going to go to one of two eternal destinations. So, so who is going to die to your need for a certain reputation and die to what's comfortable to you? Who's going to die to themselves so that others might hear through your life the gospel and they might have eternal life in Jesus. And you've, you're surrounded day in and day out on this campus with people who don't have life. And you know Jesus died to bring them life. So what do you need to die to in order to proclaim this message and lead others to life and not just on this campus? Can I put this map on the screen? This map of the world that represents different countries in the world. The green areas of this map represent areas in the world where the gospel has gone. The good news of Jesus has been proclaimed. There's access to it. If you live in those places, obviously not everybody's a Christian in those places, for sure, but but people have access to the gospel in those places. The yellow areas on this map, they have less access to the gospel, but there's still some. And then the red areas on this map represent parts of the world that are classified as unreached by the gospel. And you heard it in that video. 3.2 billion people in these red areas that right now have little to no knowledge of the name of Jesus. Nobody's ever told them. Three billion people. Nobody's ever told them. But the good news of God's love in Jesus. I, I don't know if that's news to you, that there's three billion people in the world like that, or if you know that reality. But I want to encourage an arena full of people tonight. When you think about the point of your life, 
to refuse to turn a deaf ear to those three billion. Like I, I was with a group two weeks ago of about 50 influencers, innovators, leaders. You would recognize a lot of their names. Athletes, entertainers, then Fortune 500 execs and entrepreneurs and tech gurus working in all kinds of places that you would also recognize. Every one of them was a follower of Jesus. And every one of them, we got them together and we just said, hey, how can you use your life and leverage the grace God has given you for the spread of the gospel in these places? And I want to say the same thing that we were talking about, this group, in this room. Like I, just, I look around this room and I see all the different gifts and skills and degrees and opportunities that are represented in this room to live for the spread of the gospel among all the nations of the world, to die to the pursuits of this world. More money, more success, bigger houses, more stuff, smooth career, coasting through to retirement, go to heaven and ignore three billion people who've never heard the gospel. I want to urge you, don't waste your life on that. You'll get to the end and you'll realize you missed the point. You've been given, we have been given the greatest news in the world. And there's people right around us in Auburn, Alabama, where I live in Washington, D.C., who need that good news. So let's live for that end today, tomorrow. And then as we look at our lives in the days to come, let's say, God, here's my life. Use me however you want to go, to give, to pray, to be a part of the spread of this gospel where it's not yet gone. Help me to die to all the stuff of this world, to sin in this world, and to live for what's going to matter for all of eternity. For three billion people, I've met them, I've seen their faces. When you walk up to someone and you say, have you ever heard about Jesus? They say, who is that? They don't know his name. And you're getting degrees that open wide doors into those places. I think about a, a girl graduated a nursing degree, and immediately started looking for a job, found one in the Middle East. There's tons of medical degrees. We'd love to help you get connected with them. Medical job openings. And she went, she got a job opening, she got a job doing nursing in this hospital in the heart of the Middle East. She has risen up in the ranks of nursing. She's now head over nursing in this significant hospital in the Middle East. She has a Bible study every single week in her office with Muslims. Nobody stops her. Do you know why? Because she's really, really good at nursing. And because she's decided to live her life so that, so that others can experience eternal life. She's decided to die to everybody else's plan in this world for her and to live for God's plan in this world for her. And that's just one person, nursing degree. I, mean, I just look around this room, all the unique, get, like some of you love math. No idea why, but you, God has given you a passion for math, and there's opportunities to use numbers and statistics around the world for the glory of God, engineering, agriculture. I think about a guy I met in the heart of the Himalayas who's using uh, uh, fish waste, trout poop, to help provide nutrients in unreached villages, and he's sharing the gospel. If, if God can use 
trout poop for the spread of the gospel among the nations. He can use whatever you got to bring to the table. Question is, will you die so that others can live? So here's what I want to do. I want to ask these, these guys to come back up and lead us now to the main event tonight. I want to lead us to come before Jesus, having heard his word, to come face to face with him. And I want to invite us. So we're going we're gonna to go through just some, some time before the Lord in singing and in praying and in responding. And I just want you to think about your life right here. Like your life and to see it in this lens. And I want us to come before Jesus and acknowledge who he is. Be honest with him about sin in our lives and about the pleasures and pursuits of this world that we're prone to run after. And like I said earlier, that tonight might, for some in this room, be a defining moment, a Jane-like moment, where you say, I, I put my trust in Jesus. Or for, for others, maybe a refining moment in your life, where we just come before Jesus. So would you stand with me? And I, I, even as I say stand with me, I invite you to do that, but I also would just, uh, I would invite you to feel free at any point in the next few minutes, if it's more appropriate for you to sit or more appropriate for you to get on your knees. I just want to invite us into, this is the last thing any one of us wants tonight is just another kind of routine service to go to. Like, let's come before Jesus authentically. Let's fix our eyes and our hearts on him right now. And let's, ask him based on his word to reformat, define, refine our lives according to his invitation to us. So can you just pray for us, God? Pray that in the next few minutes, all across this arena, in a fresh way, that you would fix our hearts and our minds on Jesus, and that your spirit would visit us, move among us, in a way that can only be explained by your hand. God, I, I pray that there, the next few minutes might be people who truly trust in Jesus for the first time, and that you would draw us into deeper devotion to you. Help us to die that we might live. So we fix our eyes on you right now. Jesus, we, we lift this song of praise to you.
Christ alone. 
Like the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries is looking for those who will partner with us in this ministry of making a path straight for the Lord directly to the hearts of listeners. If you would like to partner with us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and deliver the saving grace of our Lord to others through volunteering, through prayer, and through donations, please call us at 602-866-8999. The following program is called Equipping the Saints, provided by ETS Ministry. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. And there are changes that happen when we go from death to life, and there are evidences of those changes. Throughout Scripture, we see the Apostle Paul praising God for the faith of those he writes to and their love for the saints. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul declares the truth concerning this Thessalonian church in how their faith had been proclaimed throughout all of Macedonia. And the message that came from the example of their lives that people heard and saw that was proclaimed was ultimately that they had turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. You see, if you've come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, genuinely you have turned to God from your idolatry, from your selfishness, from your sin, to serve Him. And we see in Scripture that God's true people are His servants. And so often these days in churches, there's a message that goes out that the gospel is for you so that you can be better, so that you can be fixed up. But the gospel goes out to declare our sin, that we would be saved from our sin in Christ so that we could turn and be in right relationship and serve the Lord, the living and true God. In Isaiah, and then a little earlier in chapter 6, we see Isaiah who comes before the Lord and he is undone because of God's holiness. And the Lord God forgives his sin. And after he forgives his sin, he ultimately is called out to serve him. And he says, here am I, I'll go. Here am I, I'll serve. And I believe true believers will have a genuine desire from God, if they are truly saved, to serve him. Now, the thing that troubles me and maybe troubles you is that there's not many people serving the Lord. Maybe it's because they've gone into bad churches with ungodly men who do not teach the word of God. That's possible. Maybe they're being tossed here and there by various winds of doctrine. Maybe they're not even saved. That's possible too. Or maybe their own thinking has gotten in the way and they have now looked at serving in a different light other than what God has shared in His Word. And sometimes that happens. Sometimes we come to serve the Lord and things don't work out the way we think and we split or we move or we move on to whatever it might be. And we're going to see today in the life of Jonah that he doesn't like the way God wants him to serve and he doesn't like the results of how God wants him to serve, so he takes off again and splits from the ministry and starts to pout. And we'll see how the Lord God graciously deals with Jonah. 
We're going to see today, I believe, how God addresses sinful, twisted thinking in his people that manifests in wicked behavior in the context of serving him. And I see it all the time, people who something, they get some idea in their head that is not biblical and they separate or they they want to serve in a different way other than what God has revealed in his words. And we're going to see that in the life of Jonah, but we're going to see that God is a gracious God who corrects him. And it is for our benefit, too, because we are tempted in the exact same way that Jonah is tempted. So would you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah? We're going to be looking at the last portion, verses 5 through 11. And we're going to review the whole book, and we're going to review what we saw last week, and then we're going to sum it up as we come to the end of the book of Jonah. And I hope you've been blessed by it. I've been greatly blessed in my study. And God's Word is always that way. As we just get into His Word and study it, we are always blessed. And it does not return void. It accomplishes what He desires. I'm going to review the context. Jonah is a true story. Jonah is a real prophet. He is a servant of the Lord. It is not a fish story. It is not an allegory. The Lord Jesus Christ himself testifies to the genuineness of Jonah, the preaching of Jonah, the salvation of the Ninevites, that Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights. He testifies it and uses it as a type to picture what he would do being in the ground dead for three days and three nights and then rise from the dead. It is a true story. Now, I've shared in the last few times the context, and there are two threads that we need to understand behind the book of Jonah. We need to look at the Ninevites, and we need to look at Israel. First of all, we need to recognize that Israel was disobedient on the way to exile. They were God's people, and they were disobedient on the way to exile. And we need to realize that most likely what God was doing in this book for them at that time was showing that Jonah actually typifies Israel's reaction and how they related to those around them. Israel was disobedient on the way to exile. Now Jonah was written during the time of the divided kingdom, during Jeroboam II's reign, 793 B.C. to 758 The northern kingdom was only a generation or so away from going into captivity in judgment, discipline from God. Jonah's name means dove, and he is called, as we will see at the end of the message, a prophet. So Israel was disobedient on the road to discipline. God was going to discipline them. He was going to do what he had said he would do in Deuteronomy 28-30. through And within a generation, they would be taken into captivity by the very people that Jonah preaches to. Now, along with this, we need to understand Nineveh at this time. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, the Assyrians being the superpower of the day. And we've seen from the book of Nahum, chapter 3, and we've looked at it, and you can look at the historical accounts, which are plentiful, but the Ninevites were a wicked, evil people. They were a bloody people. And they were a people that turned the hearts of God's people away. They were a spiritual harlot of a nation, as we see in Scripture, Nahum chapter 3. They were wicked. They were bloody. But yet, as we see in the book of Jonah, God has compassion upon sinners. And God had compassion upon Nineveh. And we'll see that God sent Jonah to them and see what the Lord God did. Now, Nineveh was a bloody city full of lies, spiritual harlotries. They were a wicked, violent people, and therefore the Lord sent Jonah to declare their demise because of their sin. 
So Israel was spiraling into God's discipline, and Nineveh was spiraling into God's judgment. And that's really the two places that most mankind is, apart from being obedient, and that's where we want to be, right? And we see this here in the book of Jonah. Now, it's important that we review the first three chapters, and I'm going to go through this. So we're going to look at it quickly. I did it the first week we went through Jonah, and I'm going to do it this week. We're going to read through each chapter and summarize it and come up to the place where we are today. Because as you've noticed, you can read through the book of Jonah probably in about ten minutes. It's a wonderful book, and we need to see it in its context. Chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up and fled to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship and lain down and had fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. And each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us now on whose account has this calamity struck us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened and they said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us, for thou, O Lord, hast done as thou hast pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. God calls Jonah to go and proclaim against Nineveh because of their wickedness. Jonah, because of his attitude towards them, as we see in chapter 4, and a lack of faith concerning the character of God, disobeys him and heads the opposite direction to Tarshish. But the Lord God does not allow him to go far. He sends a storm upon the ship, a storm in which everyone is about to perish. 
a storm in which the pagans are calling on their gods to discern why this calamity came upon them. And the lot falls on Jonah, and he is questioned, and it becomes evident that he is the reason why all this is happening upon them. The sailors try to desperately save the ship, but things get worse. And then the most wonderful thing happens. These sailors were crying out to their gods, and then they cried out to the Lord. And they recognized his sovereignty. And then Jonah's discipline continues as he is thrown over and swallowed by a great fish. Then in chapter 2, we saw God's hand of discipline continuing in Jonah as he prays from the belly of the fish. A prayer in which he recounts his drowning. A prayer in which God answers and spares his life. Then we saw the fruit of God's discipline in Jonah's life as inside the whale he declares his thankfulness to the living God for in his loving salvation, his desire to obey, and he recognizes that God is sovereign over all things, that salvation is from the Lord. Chapter 2, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. And then he recalls his prayer when he was drowning. And he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol, for thou didst hear my voice. For thou hast cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me, and thy breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from thy sight. Nevertheless, I will look again towards thy holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But thou hast brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to thee into thy holy temple Those who regard vain isles forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to thee with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. Jonah was within an inch of his life, and God answered his prayer and saved him. And when he gave thanks... And declared God's truth. God had the fish vomit him up. And that leads us to chapter 3. Do you remember we saw in that chapter what true repentance looks like from the Old Testament? As exhibited in the life, first of all, with Jonah as he obeys. And then secondly, in the lives of the Ninevites as they hear the word of God and turn. The greatest revival that mankind has ever seen based on the preaching of the word of God that the Lord Jesus himself declares that the men of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. Chapter 3, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city a one day's walk. That's important. We'll see that later on today. And he cried out and said, Yet forty days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. He declared a message of God's judgment upon them for their sin, and they believed in God. 
And they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth and sat on ashes and issued a proclamation. And it said, in Nineveh, by decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink. Both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. They got the message. They understood the message of Jonah that they were going to perish, that God is angry at them for their sin. And they turned and they cried out earnestly to God. And the evidence of their true repentance was their actions. Their actions did not save them. It was an evidence of their turning to God. Verse 10, when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. And this leads us to our passage today. We're going to review the first four verses where I believe we're going to see how in the life of the believer, God addresses sinful, twisted thinking that will manifest itself in wicked behavior. And we're going to see this through the example of Jonah's sad and pitiful compassion compared to God's gracious mercy. Turn with me again to Jonah chapter 4, if you're not already there. And we're going to review what we first saw last week. We went through verses 1 through 4 in detail. And I think, first of all, we need to recognize that twisted thinking concerning God will manifest itself in sinful behavior. And if you'll remember that God revealed this wicked behavior of Jonah's as he declared his word to him. Jonah 4.1 But it greatly displeased Jonah And he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that thou art a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. And the Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Now we saw last week the glorious salvation of the Ninevites, which God brought about through the preaching of the word of judgment by Jonah. This glorious salvation on a wicked people. And evidently, Jonah, as we will see, is still in Nineveh at this point, in the beginning of chapter 4. He is still in the city, as we will see, because later he leaves the city. And he is in the city seeing their repentance, and he is greatly displeased. And we saw last week the absolutely opposite reaction that we would expect from anyone who loves the Lord. Jonah is angry that the Ninevites are repenting rather than rejoicing at the repentance. They've turned from their wicked ways, the very things Jonah hates. And they have turned to God, but yet it says, 
but it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. And we saw, you could literally translate this, it was evil to Jonah, a great evil, and he became hot, angry. The salvation of the Ninevites to Jonah was a great evil, a great evil, and he became furiously hot. Instead of getting the reasons why Jonah might be angry, we could go through a myriad of reasons. Why is Jonah angry? What are the reasons why he is angry? Maybe it's the wickedness of the Ninevites. Well, they repented. Maybe it was Israel's pride because they were God's chosen people. Maybe it was the possibility that Jonah thought, wow, Israel, when I go back, they're going to think I'm a false prophet. I said God's going to judge them. God didn't judge them. That's a false prophet. A whole bunch of reasons why Jonah might think that and be upset. But for whatever reason, God doesn't share it. And that's really important to see in the book of Jonah. We need to look at what God reveals to us in the book of Jonah and not go way off into all the other stuff, which is interesting to look at, but not what God wants us to know. What God wants us to know was it was a great evil to Jonah. And we see ultimately that his thinking is messed up. Verse 2, and he prayed to the Lord. He's just upset. He's in Nineveh. He's upset. Seeing this revival, first day's walk. It isn't even the third day. Three days walk. First day's walk. And he prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall all this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that art a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. What a wicked prayer. Stemming from wicked anger. His thinking is all messed up. We saw this last week. Jonah seemingly justifies his running away from God here in this prayer. He has been disciplined almost to death, and now he's kind of going back and sort of justifying it. See, God, I told you this would happen. That's why I ran. Jonah knew the truth concerning God and Scripture, but yet his view of God was all messed up. And his messed up view of God manifests itself in anger, and as we see, a wicked, deadly depression, where he says in verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. This is too hard to bear, these people repenting. We think it's crazy to think this way, right? But Jonah has messed up thinking like we often do.
To show us the reason to live. As the years went by, we learned more about gifts. The giving of ourselves and what that means. On a dark and cloudy day, a man hung crying in the rain. All because of love. All because of love. We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.